Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Robert Doyle. Robert is an associate professor of medicine in Upstate Medical University Chemistry at the State University of New York. He's here to discuss novel drug delivery methods for basic research and novel infusion technologies. Let's jump in. Dr. Doyle, can you elaborate on the sources of the hyperphagia or compensation that was observed in your studies and this ELF-PYY in general? I'm sure. So the, the compensatory mechanisms are really uh, a consequence of the natural starvation response. So you're getting an endocrine response to the fact that you're going to have energy reduction and you're going to have essentially your body knowing you're not eating what you need or what you're used to actually ingesting. And it will start to override PYY3236 specifically in this case, since we're talking about PYY3236, it will start to override PYY3236 function. So you will see leptin changes, ghrelin changes, alpha-MSH changes. And essentially what your body will say, right, no more off, we're going to enter an on phase. And that's why it's so difficult to uh, produce weight reduction, especially a long-term weight reduction therapy that has minimal side effects and actually maintains any kind of meaningful function over you know, a year or two years. Uh, it's really, really, really difficult because it's quite easy to overeat. Uh, it turns out, it's very difficult to undereat, and that's an evolutionary starvation protection mechanism. And so that's something that we're going to have to greatly overcome. It's not just a mitigation of signal at the GPCR, which of course is another problem with the targeting of the GPCR specifically. It's got to do with normal starvation or hyperphagic responses, and the major problem in developing an obesity medication. Okay, thanks for that response. You've also shown that vitamin B12 seems to have improved absorption and blood-brain barrier uptake as per one of your slides towards the end, but does it offer any proteolysis protection? By itself, actually it does. We've done a study with, with trypsin, chymotrypsin, with meprin beta, which is a major brush-border kidney-based protease. And we've actually shown this not with PYY, but with Exendin-4, which is a, a Novo Nordisk medication or a basis of a Novo Nordisk medication to treat type 2 diabetes. And that the B12 itself does offer some protection against proteolysis against all three of those, intestinal and, and kidney-based. Uh, but that it's really pronounced when the B12 is itself then bound up by its protecting protein, which of course would be the endogenous state of any B12 PYY. Well, I keep talking about B12 PYY, what was entering the brain and functioning in the brain would have been a transcobalamin 2 bound B12 PYY. So you would have also had a 50 kilodalton protein wrapped around the B12, if you will. That's obviously showing the greatest improvement in function. And we've shown that in that case, uh, and in a situation where the exendin 4 is completely degraded, um, we still have 100% of function uh, relative to that completely degraded uh, exendin 4. So Yes, to the B12 itself, but markedly when you consider it that it will actually endogenously be bound up by a natural transport protein. Okay, great. Another question, why would a biased agonist potentially overcome compensation? Well, it may. It's unlikely. I think the main benefit of a biased agonist would be, uh, if it was going to do that, would be it would change the tissue responses. So it would change the response from uh, a particular set of tissues to another. And that might actually mitigate the compensation. 
but it also might be that it will uh, at least prolong the function of the conjugate because, or of the particular pharmaceutical, because you won't get that GPCR uh, mitigation effect, which of course our, our GPCRs are famous for. If you add morphine for a prolonged period of time, obviously you need more and more morphine to get the same response, and that's because of the consequence of the dampening of that GPCR response. In this case, for the biased agonist, we would hope to only go down, for example, the, the pathway we want and leave the nullifying or mitigating pathway unactivated such that we don't see a dosing change or a need for increased doses to achieve the same response over time. So I think changing this, the tissue specificity, modifying which GPCR we target, and or overcoming that uh, GPCR mitigation response, all of that would certainly lend itself to greater function. Whether it would lend itself to overriding long-term compensatory mechanisms, though, is a big question. Okay, great. Michelle asks, how much of your PYY effects are due to changes in leptin sensitivity? Can you comment on that? Yeah, we haven't looked at leptin levels. That's actually a really good question. One of the things we believe is playing havoc with us is leptin changes. I think where we're seeing the compensation kick in again is tied to leptin. Um, and one of the things we're actually going to do, and one of the things we've written to the NIH to support us doing, is to actually start co-administering this conjugate with an antagonist. So something um, like an oxytocin, for example, as well as look at leptin levels and, and, and actually see where all this is playing out. So that's all on the to-do list. But leptin is a concern, something we want to look at. Uh, Co-administration of an antagonist like oxytocin as well is something we want to do. I think that might also lend itself to overcoming some of those negative pathways, if you will, to, to why we're seeing compensation. What we're particularly encouraged by, though, is the Zucker rat data over longer periods of time. We seem to be seeing more and more improvement. The bigger the animals are and the, uh, the longer time point we look at. But yeah, leptin's on our to-do list. Okay, great. Robert, perhaps you can comment, you know, in terms of your experience with these mini pumps, you talked about how easy the surgery is, but can you comment on the programmability and how, you know, what the best resources were for you in terms of learning how to program the pumps and use them? Uh, well, like I said, I, we took a medicinal chemistry PhD student and between a Monday and a Friday, they were completely off by with their they're very straightforward. I mean, they do exactly what they say on the tin, so to speak. We've never lost a pump. Uh, we've never had a student screw up, if you will. And we've done it now on, on a multiple of occasions. The, actually, I should point out that the first time we used them was also the first time the technician himself had ever actually used them. Uh, he, was a, 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 he is a highly skilled veterinary technician. Um, so he was in an ideal place to pick it up, but he picked it up immediately without any questions, without any issues, without any confusion whatsoever. So they're very user friendly and with any kind of comparable, well-trained technician, they've worked really well. And he's been able to then pass that along to medicinal chemists from my lab who had only basic husbandry training and be able to do surgeries within no time whatsoever and be able to program the pumps, etc. very quickly. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.